This is the Sergio Rodriguez Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Sergio Rodriguez Show, a show unlike any other. Today, a little bit of a rivalry with the person I'm bringing in because everybody knows that on this broadcast, we are a predominantly New York Yankee telecast. But today, from the Houston Astros, the general manager, Mr. Dana Brown. Dana, how are you? Hey, hey Sergio. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me on. Now, listen, you grew up in New Jersey. What team did you root for growing up? I actually grew up a Met fan. You know, I was a big Mookie Wilson was my favorite player back in the day because I was outfielders. Looking on shit, speedy guy, all of that. So I was a big Mookie Wilson fan. Grew up a Met fan. Okay, okay. So I won't, I, I won't tell you that you left the Yankees to go GM somewhere else because that's it. You know, it's always an interesting thing for me how people grow up and then all of a sudden, you know, they have to wear a different shirt across their chest and it changes the way that they think you know yeah it's funny my my son's a yankee fan and when i worked for toronto you know he uh he got a picture with jeter i got him down on the field he was all excited about that you know i grew up a met fan you know i was drafted by the phillies though so you know that's kind of weird you know grew up a met fan drafted by the phillies and uh you know been with a few organizations since but uh it's always weird how things turn out so you, you you mentioned that you were drafted by the Phillies. Obviously, you played for – we have a mutual friend, uh, Mike Coco, who coached you at Seton Hall, and um, obviously I coach his kid now. But you, you went to Seton Hall, and you played with a couple of former big leaguers who made their impact. Speak to me about your time at Seton Hall before you got into pro ball. Yeah, Seton Hall uh, was a great baseball school. You know, I decided to go there – you know, uh, because, you know, the baseball was great. You know, the, 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 the university wasn't as big. You didn't have to worry about classroom sizes and all that other stuff. And so being at Seton Hall, you know, you felt like you were going to go there, get, get a good education, and also uh, you were going to be on a good baseball team that, that get guys scouted. And I was very fortunate that, you know, I played with guys like Craig Biggio, Mo Vaughn, John Valentin, uh, you know, Kevin Morton was also on that eight team. And, you know, that's like, you know, that's four big leaguers right there. And, you know, people don't realize, like, we have Martise Robinson on the team, you know, who hit 100 points higher than Craig Biggio, which is kind of crazy. And Craig Biggio is a Hall of Famer. It just tells you how tough this game is. Um, but at the end of the day, it was a great it was a great stop for me education-wise, and it was a great stop for me baseball-wise. And so, um, you know, got my degree there. So I was excited about that. And, you know, still in baseball. You go to the Phillies, you get drafted, and then you end up coaching in their organization. When you got there as a coach, you were still young. So I'm sure physically you probably felt you can play. How was the transition from player to coach from one year to the next? Yeah, Sergio, it's tough. No doubt about it. You know, you still feel like you could play. Um, you know, I was uh, I played for three years after being drafted, and then uh, you know got as high as Double A. And then in spring training one year, they they released me and offered me a coaching job in the same sentence. 
So, of course, I took it because I wanted to stay in the game. And little did I know that it was going to lead to something like this in my career. Uh, so it, it, it worked out, you know, even though, you know, at the time I was struggling with it. I still wanted to play, but the good Lord had something different for me. I didn't realize what I was doing and going through back then. But, you know, to now be here in a GM chair, it's um, pretty fulfilling. And the only minority GM, which to me is, is is special, right, as a minority myself, because I always think about the fact that being Dominican and watching all of the players that have gone through Major League Baseball since we were kids, the revolving door of superstar Dominican players, and the fact that we don't have one Dominican manager or haven't really had that that run, right? We had Tony Payne every now, you know, but we, we have these guys that'll go in for a year or two, Manny Acta, but we haven't had an impact in that game. So to see someone of color in that position, you know, gives you hope that if you just keep on grinding, it's going to, you know, it'll happen, you know? Yeah, you know, so one of the good things that I saw, like I, I think I'm the seventh general manager uh, in baseball, uh, African-American, you know, but you had guys that were ahead of me. You know, people don't know about Lucas, who was in Atlanta, Bill Lucas. Um, but, you, you you know, guys like Kenny Williams, uh, you know, Hill, who was, uh, you know, GM in Miami. Um, Bob Watson. You know, so you, you – yeah, Bob Watson. I remember he was the GM of the Yankees. I still remember the Graham Lloyd trade. You know, he took a little static and ended up being a good trade. Uh, you know, so you had some guys that went before you that kind of gave you a vision that, look, this is attainable. You can do it. You know, and I worked my way up through the ranks, of course, and, you know, just, just the years of scouting, the years of evaluating players, and getting this opportunity, you don't take it lightly. You know, you, you know there's not many... Uh, African-Americans doing it. And so you want to pave the way and you want to, you know, lay the groundwork as to, hey, we have some qualified African-Americans that deserve a shot, you know. And, you know, thank thank God for Jim Crane, who, you know, he, I sat with an owner, Jim Crane, and he ended up hiring me. We had a good meeting. And, uh, you know, he kind of followed my career, my track record, my past, and decided, hey, give me an opportunity. And then you had guys like Rob Manford who said, hey, stay the course. I know you had a couple other GM interviews. You had an interview with Seattle. You had an interview with the Mets. But, uh, you know, stay the course, and now good things are going to happen. And sure enough, I got the opportunity in 2023, you know, after being in the game for like uh, 33 years. So uh, it's a good thing, and I'm excited about it. That game took you through the Expos, the Nationals, Toronto, Atlanta, where everyone really started to recognize the job that you had been doing, right? Because I think that sometimes we do our jobs, but they, it doesn't get the same recognition as when something always happens that pops. And with all that young talent that came up with Atlanta and everybody realized that you, as a direct, as a president of scouting, was be was behind that and then the team obviously wins and you got strider and all these guys you pop there and now you get to houston and right. houston's got a philosophy that has worked for them and has been obviously second to none over the last 10 15 years right 
when you get there, right. when you get there and you speak to, to Mr. Crane and you get hired, is there a mandate of, hey, you're the boss, you're the GM, but we want X, Y, and Z. We want to keep this analytic stuff. We want to keep this. Is there a philosophy that is bestowed upon you that you have to now follow or or you have to work around? How has that been? No, so Sergio, one of the things people don't understand is, you know, we've always applied the analytics to, to baseball, right? It's just that we're getting more in detail with certain aspects of analytics, uh, you know, because we, we have a thing in scouting that, you know, before you make a pick, weigh all the evidence. So you weigh the evidence of the scouting report. You weigh the evidence of the analytics. And then the most important part, you weigh the, the evidence of the makeup. The makeup is what drives you and, what, you know, what kind of winner, winning player you're going to be. So those are some aspects that you can't get away from. You know, you have to take analytics. You have to take the scouting. You have to take the makeup. It's a combination of all of those things. And, and to think that you could, you know, do the job without applying any one of those, uh, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. So, but those are the the three main things we really evaluate and value uh, here in Houston. And we did the same thing also in Atlanta. So, uh, and then Houston has, you know, you know, some high tech analytic stuff that, you know, that we apply. And a lot of it, I don't completely understand, but, you know, we have people here who understand it and talk to me about how that applies to, you know, uh, the scouting side. Uh, what does this mean? This guy is throwing, 93 to 97, but he keeps getting hit, you know, well, it doesn't have many traits for the fastball. So you learn a lot of different things, but you have to weigh all the evidence when you're making baseball decisions. Is it hard for someone who grew up, because we grew up basically in the same generation. Is it hard to look at the value that they put on players now? I mean, I see, I see guys that are batting 240 with, a million strikeouts and people try to tell me that they're these great players, but I guess we grew up in a different generation where if you batted 240, you were a light hitting middle infielder, right? So mentally, just because of what was ingrained in you, has it been hard to, to, to adapt um, st numerically, I should say statistically? Not, not necessarily uh, because you weigh the overall value and production of the player. You know, back when we were playing, there wasn't much shifting and guys knew I'd hit the ball the other way and you couldn't shift as much. You know, so there's different things that change. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the analytics, uh, you know, plays a part of it. So you realize this guy may have hit 240, but maybe he had 30 home runs. And he drove in a lot of runs. And so he was productive in another way, not so much in, in terms of batting average. You know, uh, but he was productive. And so, you know, you take the productivity where you can get it. And, uh, you know, and you make sure that you're doing the other things right with the club as far as you better be pitching. You know, you better have, you better have good pitching. You better catch the baseball so you need good defense. And, of course, the timely hitting is what uh, seals the deal on a good club. If you have pitching and you can catch the baseball and you get some timely hits, you're going to win a lot of baseball games. You know, it's funny because one of the things that I hear from sports writers and everybody is that wins in baseball for a pitcher don't matter. And that drives me crazy because to me, there is an art to winning a game. 
And to me, there is an art to hanging around and figuring out how to maximize the hundred pitches you might have in your arm on that day. When you, yeah, I think it goes. Good. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, my point is, no, I was going to say, do you do you feel the say same? It goes both ways. Well, so I feel I, I I think it goes both ways. I think there's an there's an art to a guy who knows how to pitch deep in the game. Maybe he doesn't have the greatest stuff, but he can pitch deep into a game and he really knows how to operate and he's going to have a, a, a lot of wins because he's pitching deep in the game and he hands that over to the bullpen. There is value in that. You just can't overweight it. For example, you may have a guy that's got a high earn run average, but every time he pitches, the team scores a lot of runs, you know, and he's got a sixth earn run average, right? Just because he won the game, I'm not going to overweigh that, you know? Um, so I think there's, there's, there's stuff that you have to – it's not as easy as saying wins doesn't matter, uh, and it's not as easy as saying, well, this guy's got a lot of wins, so it he must be really good. Correct. Correct. Yeah, so I think you have to weigh – again, you have to weigh all the evidence. I do feel like there's an art to guys who can pitch in that three-to-two game, four-to-three four game, and pitch deep and operate and get out – I, I think there's value to that, you know, but, but I'm not going to overweigh wins for a guy who's got like a high earn run average, but he wins games simply because the team scores a lot of runs when he, when he, when he's pitching. So I just think, you know, uh, sometimes we get into this, you know, right, wrong, black, white, you know, uh, it's not as cut and dry as that, you know, baseball is a complex game. And I think there's a lot to it. I mean, there's certain hitters that you want coming up, you know, when you have men in scoring position, you know, and there's certain guys you don't want to see, you know, but it's just, it's a complex game. And, you know, that's what makes it beautiful. It's like the game of life. You just never know, you know, how it's going to turn out. Uh, but you've got to set yourself up to be in a good position. Put your, put your scouting hat on for me right now. One of the things that I feel has been totally overvalued over the last 20 years in baseball is the defensive aspect of the catching position because guys don't run like they did back in the day. So the the idea of, of neutralizing a running game really has been more shifted to the pitcher just basically doing somewhat of a decent job holding the runner on from getting a huge lead. All these guys are throwing the ball 97 to 100. So realistically, you're sitting there really, your hardest job might be physically just catching the ball if a guy misses a spot. When you look at cat the catching position over the last 20 years, do you guys still value the defensive aspect of the of the catching position or have you guys shifted to more of, hey, if this guy can get 20 home runs from that position, we'll live with whatever happens behind the plate. Example, Gary Sanchez, somebody like that who, for all intents and purposes, should be a guy who I think should be able to have a job, and he's been struggling to get one, and I don't understand why, because in this game, he's really what I would want as a catcher, hit first, defense second. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the deal is this, right? So I, I, I don't think you should, uh, you know, underway, you know, uh, 
the, the, the value of a defensive catcher. You know, you, you have to wait. You have to give it some value because there's some catchers who just can run the show back there. For the most important part, right, of catcher is calling a game, right? You got to know how to call a game. That's very important. You got to know what pitch is on, what pitch is working, what pitch is not working. That's the valuable tool to knowing how to call a game. Also, framing. Framing is a valuable part of what catchers do. They know how to frame. They know how to, you know, get a strike here or get a strike there. That's a very big, big part of the game when you can frame. You know, and then blocking the ball. You know, I mean, if you're constantly running back to the screen to get the ball and no one wants to throw to you, I mean, that's not good either. Now, if you got a guy that's got home runs and he can catch, and maybe he's not the greatest caller or the greatest framer or the greatest blocker, well, you can live with them. But you do have to have those skills to be behind the plate. Maybe you don't have to be plus or above average. Maybe you're just average at those other things. But you could really hit, and that creates some value as well. But what you can't afford is a guy who doesn't know how to call a game, he doesn't know how to frame, he doesn't know how to block, but he can hit 25 or 30 home runs. You know, maybe we'll find another spot for that guy. It's called DH. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. But you want, you know, you want your guys, you want your guys behind the plate to be able to call the game. You want your guys. You know, to follow the pitch plan, call in the game. You want your guy to be able to frame a little bit, and you want him to be able to block. You know, I mean, this, this, as you said, there's guys that throw hard. There's guys that have nasty sliders. All right, you're going to have a guy on third base. If he can't block the good stuff, the pitcher's not going to feel as good throwing it. So, you know, there's, there's some value to the defensive side of catching. I don't think, you know, we should just kind of just pass it off. But, uh, but you know, as I said, you can't overweigh one thing over the other. You need a balance to get through this game. And you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that to get some wins. A couple of things here before we wrap it up. Talk to me about mm -hmm. this year's Houston team. You guys are nine games over. You know, Texas has gotten off to a pretty good start, and they got off to that start really without DeGrom doing any pitching, which I guess has become the norm. But where... Where could you guys get better this year? What 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 is the one thing that you're looking at and you're saying to yourself, yeah, if we can figure this out by the All-Star break, we're going to take off? Yeah. Yeah. Early on, we were uh, striking out a lot, which I didn't, you know, I knew it was not consistent with who we are, you know. Uh, so I, I know once we cut the strikeouts down, we were going to start driving the ball a little bit more and, and driving and runs a little more. So that was one area. And then we, we, we're starting to clean that up. And, uh, you know, we just got to get some production from some of our guys. And, and, and once they get hot, I think we're going to take off. Because if you look at it, we're like at the top in pitching. We're like second or third in defense. So we can pitch. We can catch the baseball. Once the bats, uh, you know, come through, yeah, I think we'll be really good. I think that's when you'll see – you know, the eight to ten game winning streak, the ten to twelve game winning streak, you know, you know, double figures over five hundred, you know, whether it's twelve, fourteen or eighteen, that's when you'll see everything click and you're running on all cylinders. So, uh that's the best part of the game, you know, when you get on all cylinders and you're pitching, you're catching the ball and you're hitting, good things are gonna happen. As you begin to prepare 
for now the last hundred games of the season. It's incredible. We're already a third of the way through. But as you begin to prepare and you look at what moves you're going to make, the American League West has four teams with winning records. The American League East has all five teams with winning records. Yet the National League only has six total teams with winning records in their league. As you're beginning to prepare, do you look at this and you say, okay, this guy, these guys are going to be sellers. These guys are going to be buyers. How do we match up here and there? You go through that process? Yeah, I think it's a little early right now to tell. You still have a little bit of time for that. I mean, we were, I was in Atlanta in 2021 and, you know, we were like 500, you know, and, you know, what we called Harris up, we put Strider in a rotation, you know, the team took off. It was like the end of May, like maybe May 30th, May 29th, you know, so it's still got a month to go before you can, you know, say who's going to be closer to 500 or who's going to be under 500. You know, the teams that are uh, not playing well, you know, and they don't have a good team, that's different. You know, maybe you can say they're going to finish under 500. But there are some good clubs out there right now, as we were in Atlanta that year, 21. We were hovering right around 500, one game under 500. And then we got hot. So I think it's a little early. But, uh, you know, I think there's more teams that are going to end up over 500. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just a matter of when you get hot, stay healthy, and get on – you get, get clicking on all cylinders. And I think, you you know, that's when things will change. Everybody knows. All right. about, yeah. Everybody knows about yeah. the top players in your organization. And this will be it for me. The Jordan mm -hmm. Alvarez and everybody. Give me two young players to keep an eye on moving forward in the organization. Yeah. Well, Gilbert last year from the last year's draft, he's really good. You know, exciting. He's got power. He can run. He can play defense. He can throw. You know, he's a very, very exciting player. You know, it's it's really, really exciting to watch. And, you know, hopefully he'll continue to progress, you know, and, uh, you know, he'll be he'll be one of the pillars, you know, down the road at some point because uh, he's an exciting player and he plays with, like, a little bit of a flair, you know, um, and, 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 you know, that's just something to get excited about. You know, we also have, uh, you know, Melton. You know, Melton's a really good player. Power, really good defense, defensive guy. Plays center field. So, you know, those are two really young outfielders who, you know, we project that could be pretty, pretty good players and pretty good pieces down the road. And not only can they play defense, but they can hit. And they can hit for power. So, uh, you know, those are, those are really, really exciting things. Uh, we have Lee and AAA catchers sitting, you know, swinging a bat well. Uh, so there's some exciting guys on the farm. Uh, you know, we just have to see how they progress and, and keep moving. Dana, thank you for taking 20 minutes to speak to us today. I know you're busy. And uh, listen, from the bottom of my heart, good luck the rest of the way during the season. And hopefully uh, we'll touch base in the world when you guys make the world series all right Sergio. good talking to you my friend take care dana that was da that was dana brown general manager of the houston astros and you've been listening to the sergio rodriguez show a show unlike any other